And I mean, I mean, can you imagine as a consumer going in and you see a nice big label on your meat shelf and it says product of the USA and you say, I'm supporting my local farmers. It's good, high quality U.S. beef. Right. And then you realize that it's boxed beef that's been brought in from overseas by one of our packers, repackaged and sold as product of the USA because it's been reprocessed in the U.S. That is absolutely false advertising and it's got to be stopped as soon as possible. Welcome back to the interview podcast on the Y Milbank Podcast Network from Milbank, South Dakota. I'm Craig Weinberg. Uh, and on the phone with us today, uh, we have a very special guest, and I'm very pleased uh, to get this time. Uh, thank you to uh, our the friend of the show, Desmond Ward, for working to get to make this happen. Uh, Senator Mike Rounds is on the phone with us. Thank you so much, Senator, for, for taking a little bit of time and talking to us. I appreciate it. Thank you. Absolutely. It's a, it's a fun thing. You know, the, the goal of the interview is to get to know people, figure out who they are, what they, uh, kind of what they believe in, in, in the political world. Uh, every election cycle, I like to get as many politicians and want and want to be politicians on to just figure out who they are. And, you know, when you watch TV, you get a three minute soundbite and it's hard to really figure out who people are in that. So, uh, I just want to take a little bit of time. We don't want to waste your time, but take some time and get to know you a little bit. And uh, talk to you about some of the stuff going on in the world today. Uh, so welcome. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. Uh, Des works for me. Uh, he was working with me in D.C. And uh, right now we're back in Pier. And, and Des has been been working with us back in the Pier office as well. So I, I get my regular fix of what's going on up in the Millbank area. Okay. So uh, right before the show uh, started, we you said you have a connection to Millbank. What is that? Oh yeah, look. I, I, when I first got back into the, in, in the, when I got back into politics to begin with, way back in 1991 when I was in the legislature, one of my mentors uh, was a guy by the name of Harold Halverson. Really? And Harold, yeah, Harold was from just outside of Millbank, but he worked in Millbank at what was then Millbank Mutual Insurance Company. Mm-hmm. And uh, Harold was one of these guys who, uh, he was uh, a very conservative but uh, uh, just a, a great all-around human being. And he was one of my best friends in the legislative process. And he really took me under his wing. And uh, I, I, I just loved Harold. And uh, I think one of the saddest things that I remember is, is when I was running for governor in 2002, Harold passed away. Mm. And uh, uh, I, I just, uh, he had said he was going to support me as governor at the time. And, um, but he was my friend. Yeah. And, and we did a lot of things together. Um, uh, he he always he he knew my wife not as Jean but as Jeannie, and she was one of the few people that that he, that she actually let call her Jeannie. But uh, <laughs> uh, uh, just a but just a a dear dear friend. Yeah. Uh, so you said ninety one was when you first got into the political world. Yeah, I, a- I ran for the legislature in South Dakota here at from Pierre. Uh, so I ran for the for the state house or for the state senate. I was there in the state Senate for 10 years, um, and the last six I served as majority leader. Uh, then after that, I took a break, wasn't planning on getting back into politics at all. I was going to support John Thune, as a matter of fact, to be the next governor of South Dakota. Well, that's and, interesting. Uh, yeah. And matter of fact, we talked about it, and he wanted to know what my plans were. And I said, listen, I'm going to stay in the business community. I'm mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to, to getting back into my business full time and and uh, John said, well, I'm thinking about running for governor. And I said, listen, you get back in and I'll help you. And so uh, uh, at that point, we'd known each other for years already. And 
And uh, I just thought he was going to make a great governor. And so I was supporting him. Then something happened that changed all of our lives. And that was 9-11, September 11th, 2001 hit. And George Bush asked John if he would, at that time, he was a House member in in Washington. He asked him if he would, uh, if he'd consider running for the United States Senate. And John decided rather than coming back and running for governor, he would run for the United States Senate. And so that left the Republican nomination for governor that year open. And we ended up in a three-way primary. Uh, two of my really good friends, uh, Mark Barnett and Steve Kirby, were already in. And I was the Johnny come lately that year and <laughs> and uh, uh, got into the race and, and uh, was fortunate enough to win the primary and then went on from there, but uh, to two terms as governor. Mm. And once again, I had no intentions of getting back into politics at all. But I just got I got so fed up with what was going on in Washington, D.C. I just, you know, we got common sense out here in South Dakota. We really do. I mean, there's something here in this part. I think it's in the water, maybe. But uh, <laughs> there's, a com- there's a common sense out here yeah. that 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 is lacking in D.C. Mm-hmm. And I finally got tired of what was going on. And I as I told some of my friends, I said, I think they need a little bit of adult supervision and just decided that I was going to throw my hat in the ring and, and run for the United States Senate. Fortunate to get the Republican nomination and then. And then to win the election and to be able to serve. And it's it's been a, a real experience. And, uh, you know, hopefully what I've done and what I told folks I was going to do was to bring that common sense, the experience that I developed into Washington and bring a little bit of that that Midwestern flavor to what I thought was and still believe is a pretty broken city. Yeah. So you uh, you're at the end of your first term in this in at the national level. Um, what was the biggest shocker for you going from, you know, South Dakota politics your whole career to then going to to that broken system. What, what was the thing that you were like, wow, I didn't expect this? I, I I was surprised at how much moves through without debate. Ooh, talk, uh, what do and, you mean? Well, just as an example, um, you, you can have the interaction you would think that folks are on the floor and they're debating things and they're negotiating amendments and so forth. Mm-hmm. Most of the activity that goes on in Washington is based on staff interaction, staff to staff. And so, so not the elected me, person. Right. They, they'll, <laughs> they'll have that. Well, we, we've all got staff sure. there, but you've got a number of different areas. But what happens is, is it's a case of where if I've heard it once, I've heard it, you know, you, you hear it three, four times a day. I'll have my people talk to your people. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the Senate folks, then you'll go back up to them and you'll say, hey, I want, want to talk to you about a particular piece of legislation we're working on. They'll say, well, what's that all about? And it's something that might have actually originated in their office to begin with. <laughs> they and they're not they're not aware of it. Wow. And, you know, and, and we don't do it that way back yeah. here, you know. And yeah. so when I get into stuff, if I'm working on legislation, I'm in the middle of it mm-hmm. and I'm hands on. And so uh, a part of what they're finding out in D.C. is, is that if you're going to get in the middle of something which is halfway complicated, then we're one of the offices folks will come to and say, okay, look, if you guys get into legislation, you don't do a ton of legislation, but if you get into legislation, you guys get deep into it and you understand it and you can Mm -hmm. move forward with it. And so, and and I find that with some members, but not with all members, former governors uh, that I work with up there, there's probably 10, 11 of us. Most of the former governors get a little bit deeper into the legislation that they work with than a lot of the other folks do, because back in their states, they have they to have be a little to. bit more informed yeah. on them. Yeah. 
So um, as far as getting bills actually passed, uh, how much of that is actually voice voted or is a lot of it just unanimous consent push it through? In, 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 like in the legislature here, uh, we, we do a program called a uh, consent calendar. Mm-hmm. And the consent calendar is where during the legislative session, and by the way, I, I tell our legislators here, you've got a, a good system here. Mm-hmm. But you know, what you'll do is you'll have a committee look at stuff here at the state level. And if, it's, if everybody agrees it's a good program and, and there's nothing of substance to it, but it needs to be updated on a particular piece of language, rather than taking it in during that 40-day session here in South Dakota, they'll put up what they call a consent calendar. And there, there might be one, three, five, or 20 items on a daily basis on the consent calendar. You see it in advance, and then with it, you vote one time, but you vote on all of it. Well, in D.C., it's a little bit different. And and in D.C., what happens is, is they'll do what they call a unanimous consent order. And they, they do a hotline vote. They do a hotline to each one of the offices in the Senate, and they'll say, hey, by the way, here's a a resolution on, you know, uh, 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 commemorating a World Series team or something, those types of things. And they'll run it through and they'll say, hey, does your office have any objection to a request to unanimously approve the following in one of our sessions? And if the, and if none of the offices come back with a, a message saying we disagree, mm-hmm. then they'll make a motion on the floor saying I ask unanimous consent that the following, you know, pass. And you can do that in the Senate without having anybody there except two or three people because everybody's been advised. But anybody who wanted to con- to, to disagree could come down. So I- now, if they good- do want to disagree, though, um, does that right. then change it? So now it has to be voted on? Yeah. See, so that's so a nice how, thing. But how much pressure then is on people to not do that if everyone else is good with it but one or two? Is there some, some uh, peer pressure perhaps to not say anything? Oh, I, I think there might be a little bit, but you got to understand uh, the egos up here are pretty big, <laughs> and there isn't anybody in the Senate that doesn't have a little bit of an ego any, anyway. And so, at, at, well, even, even in the middle of, of the, even, yeah, I mean, even in the middle of the, even in the middle of the most hotly contested items, mm-hmm. everybody votes their own, and uh, and and you never walk in and tell somebody we expect you to vote the following way. That never happens. Really, it just doesn't. Okay, no. And if it did, it would it would it would really push a huge backfire on people. And so what, what normally happens is, is if you disagree with something, um, then you object mm-hmm. and they may very they may very well say, well, I, I want to make sure that, you know, that you're objecting to something which is very good. So we're going to have a live motion to proceed okay. on the floor and they'll and, and everybody tells you, OK, um, at this time we're going to go down and I'm going to move to to move directly to this bill and get it passed. And if you really are serious about objecting to it, <laughs> come you down need to and do it. To do it. Yeah, and, and so and, and then you do. Okay, I mean, I've done it on the floor, mm-hmm. and other people have done it on the floor when we didn't think something was right. And uh, and in fact, we've got a, a big issue coming up with regards uh, to the FISA court. Mm-hmm. This is the foreign surveillance courts, and we've got some things on it. A couple of our members have objected to moving forward with the reauthorization, and so they simply say, "I object." And it has been delayed because the nice thing on it is, is is legislation that somebody thinks is wrong in a normal legislative session, you just in a normal legislative body, you just have one vote against something Mm. and it would pass anyway. Right. But in the Senate, because you have a unanimous consent program, it works both ways. One person can stop it 
and you can't move forward until you actually get past the filibuster. And so you can take legislation and you can actually make it better by listening to what the proposed amendments are on it that would eliminate the filibuster or the delay in having things move forward. And because there's so many things trying to get attention on the floor of the Senate, the leadership will look at something and say, oh, you've got one or two or three people objecting to something. We can't. We don't even have time to bring it up because it takes over 30 hours of debate just to get it passed. Now, if it's really important, you can still go through the 30 hours of debate. But in most cases, what it means is, is one person objecting mm-hmm. will stop something in its tracks. Okay. Whereas in the South Dakota legislature, if you've got one person objecting, it'll still get steamrolled. Right. So uh, is the Senate then a lot more cooperative than we see on the news? Absolutely. (laughs) Look, absolutely. But remember, it doesn't make news. That's right. (laughs) If things are are moving smoothly. And so, I mean, I've got good friends on both sides of the aisle. Uh, We do. I don't know if people know this or not, but we have active uh, Bible study groups. Uh, We have active prayer breakfast where we get 25 members. By active, what do you mean? What? What does active mean? Like regularly? Every single week, yeah. Really? Yeah, and in fact, this week, uh, because we we haven't been meeting together as a group, Mm -hmm. they did it by podcast. Oh, cool. Or or by, by, you know, over the phone just to give people a chance to get together again. But, uh, you know, they're... I mean, it, it really is. We talk back and forth. In fact, this morning, mm-hmm. uh, I've been texting back and forth with members of both parties talking about different issues that we're still working on back there right now. And, you know, but that's the part that doesn't get much play. Well, it's not it's not incendiary. <laughs> it's that's right. Not, <laughs> that's interesting. All right. Uh, let's go back to your uh, your uh, early life. You uh, where did you grow up? Well, I, I, I was born in Huron. OK, uh, but. But um, uh, we moved to Pierre when I was like three years old. Hmm. And so my, my dad was actually a, a, a basketball coach in Hitchcock uh, and, uh, uh, um, and, and in Yale. Uh, now, that's not Yale, the university. That's Yale, South Dakota, just outside <laughs> of Huron, a suburb of Cavour, by the way, you know, for those mm-hmm. uh, little folks in, well, on Highway 14 there. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I, look, I, we, we moved to when Joe Foss, who was the governor of South Dakota, yeah. uh, you know, he was a World War II hero, uh, fighter pilot, came back in. He was actually the, um, you know, uh, uh, he was actually the commissioner of the American Football League. Uh, really? But Joe came back. Yeah. Joe, but Joe Foss was a great governor here in South Dakota. Mm-hmm. And he, he when, when he was governor, he uh, hired my dad to be the first state highway safety director back in the 1950s. And so we moved to Pierre. So um, I'm the oldest of 11. Um, wow. Uh, you know, it's Mike, Mick, Doc, Doug, Tim, Dan, Tom, Pat, Steve, Scott, and Jamie. <laughs> and then uh, my, my mom passed away in 1986, and, and um, uh, dad remarried a, a great lady, uh, Rosemary Scarborough, who had lost her husband about a year after my mom passed. And they got together at a, at a, at a prayer group meeting, and uh, she's got two sons and a daughter, and so... Uh, I've got I've got three step siblings as well, so we've got a big family, wow. and yeah, it's South Dakota style. And you, uh, your wife Jean, um, how long have you guys been married? Uh, we've been married forty two years now. Congratulations, and, good work. Hey, <laughs> thank you. Awesome. Well, well, she's put up with a lot. She, well, <laughs> apparently, <laughs> you know, she's a farm girl from over yeah. by Lake Preston. Okay, uh, uh, her folks, her, her she's got uh, two brothers that are still on the farm, and 
another brother who works uh, up in Aberdeen. He's from, they've got their family in Groton. But uh, uh, yeah, she's, her, her mom and dad are still right there in Lake Preston, uh, Alec and Helen Vedve. And uh, uh, she's in touch with them, you know, once or twice a day, every day. Yeah, that's cool. And uh, now she, staying, um, staying in touch. she is, uh, has, was diagnosed with cancer, correct? Yeah. How, how is yeah. that, uh, that fight progressing? You know, this is one of those things where you, yeah, it was almost a year ago right now that we found out mm. that this, this bump that she had right on her hip was a sarcoma. Oh. And that's like a one in a hundred types of can- cancer. And, uh, and it's a scary deal. Um, we went to, we went to Mayo, the folks in, in Pier and in Sioux Falls referred us to Mayo. And so we went up to Mayo and they said, look, we, we got to get on it right away. Uh, she did chemo last year in Mayo. Um, and then uh, after the chemo was done, the, the size of the tumor that was right on her hip, um, right by her sciatic nerve, had been substantially Ooh. reduced. So it was a very successful uh, her first step. Uh, she then had, had um, surgery last fall. And then after the surgery, we then did uh, radiation which she finished up on Valentine's Day, February 14th. And oh, uh, she got to ring ago. the bell. Awesome. Yeah. But I, I just got to tell you, uh, the support we've had from folks in South Dakota and really across the entire country has just been <laughs> phenomenal. They have, uh, they understood mm-hmm. uh, lots and lots of prayers. That's great. Um, and, you know, Jean uh, is just, I mean, the way she handled this thing is just unbelievable. She just, Stayed right with it, did exactly what the docs told her she had to do. Um, you know, you, you hate to see somebody that just sitting there taking the chemo yeah. and what it does to them. But uh, she just she just said, this is what I got to do, and I'm going to get it done. And her, her her support network here in the Pier area and across the state and all the prayers and all the thoughts, I just can't tell you what a huge difference that makes mm-hmm. when it comes to, to recovery. Now, we're, we're in the middle of that time period in which here in May um, – we get to go back and have the 90 day checkup. And this is something you're always nervous about. Right. But um, So I'll just say this. We welcome all the prayers. Uh, <laughs> yeah. we'll, we'll take them all. That makes a huge difference. That's great. Well, good. I'm glad to hear that she's, uh, that, that, that it's, it's looking up. That's fantastic. It is. And, 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 and right now we don't know of any cancer that's left there, mm-hmm. but we know there were a couple of spots on one bone that they were really going after with radiation. And we're hoping that we got it and that, uh, we just got to keep on the on the alert. Awesome. But I'll tell you what, for folks that are out there listening, if you got any thought at all that you got something wrong, even in this time of COVID, mm-hmm. you talk to your doctor and, and it's early diagnosis and early prevention is what really makes this work. So don't be afraid <laughs> yeah. to call your doctor and say, hey, I got to have you look at something or whatever, because they'll, they'll get you in. Yeah. Um, okay, th- th- that's a good segue uh, into kind of a, the next little block of where I want to go. Um, the early on, uh, I think almost all senate or governors that I have paid attention to put in place some sort of uh, uh, directive to the medical establishment. And this is all regarding the coronavirus, COVID nineteen uh, pandemic in the world, and as it came into America, um, one of those directives was to stop. Uh, elective surgeries what in your view is the long-term effect of that because that effectively stopped people from doing just what you are encouraging people to do 
And now we're hearing from governors, no, you need to actually reach out. Make sure that you're reaching out. Um, What are we going to be seeing in the next few years as a repercussion for that decision? You know, it it really depends, I think, on how quickly we're able to start reopening again. Mm -hmm. Um, There's two parts to this, really. The first part was when we talk about elective surgeries, most of your healthcare facilities survive today because they do elective surgeries. That's, as they say, that's where the money is. And so when you take that out, it means that they've had to slow down. And in many cases, even though you've got hospitals that are that, that are treating COVID-19 patients, they're actually laying some of their other people off. Yeah. And it's because of that. Now, that's the first part. The second part that people, I think, are just now starting to realize is, is there's a difference between an elective surgery versus early diagnosis. And I, and I think we need to make that differentiation that if you think you've got something wrong, it may not be an elective surgery that you're talking about here. And, uh, you know, and, and, and we probably haven't done a very good job of sharing that and reminding yeah. people of that. So this gives us a chance to do that a little bit. The other piece on it is, is I, I do think that uh, as we now know, we're not at this point inundated with COVID-19, uh, um, you know, uh, hospitalization. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And so we've got room and we've got the resources. Uh, and as long as we're careful to keep those individuals who may have it separated, I really think we need to get the healthcare industry moving again, providing those other services that they need to provide. Because mm-hmm. I think long-term, if we don't do that, I think additional complications are going to start to mount up in the future. And yeah. the sooner we get back in and get going with it again, the better off we are. And I, I'll say one more thing. I think a lot of the, the directives out there to, to stop everything but the elective surgeries, I think most of your healthcare organizations would have said that is good sound science. That's mm-hmm. good directive. And now they're saying we know where that peak was at. Uh, and, and and as long as we're keeping our social distancing down and so forth, and we're able to handle the influx from COVID-19, it's okay to start also addressing those other maladies that might be out there, those other issues that, that should be resolved earlier rather than later. Uh, are you or were you surprised at all at the speed in which the American public um, begged at some level for a government mandate of what they're allowed to do and who is appropriate to be out and about and who isn't? It, you know, not not really surprised, uh, but a, a little concerned. Um, no, I, I, I guess I wasn't surprised, mm-hmm. uh, but but I do think based on where you're at, if you're in close proximity, like in Washington, when we're in Washington, you don't go any place without a mask. Yeah. You just don't. And, 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 and it's everybody wearing them. Uh, when you come back to South Dakota, we've got open spaces. Um, and the common sense here says, I know what six feet is and I know I can keep my separations and I know I don't have to shake hands with everybody, you know, on, on the street, you know, and, and most folks up and down, they understand that. And, and they're getting a little bit more comfortable with having that separation. Um, what, what has surprised me is the, the, uh, the time period in which elected officials haven't recognized the need to let up on this a little bit and to, to trust their, their citizens to make good decisions on their own when it comes to how to respond. Uh, you know, I mean, and in South Dakota, right. we never really shut down. Mm-hmm. 
we we slowed down and we really pushed hard, but we still got farmers that had to be in the field. We still had to get the wheat in. We're still planting corn. Soybeans still got to go in. Still got to deliver the petroleum, fertilizers, the chemicals and so forth. So all of that has still continued on and grocery stores are still open. Uh, thankfully, we've still got meat in the, in the cooler space, uh, although that's that's going to be a challenge a bit, yeah. for a while. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, and, but in South Dakota, we just use good common sense. And and that, granted, Sioux Falls is different than a mill bank. Sioux Falls is different than a pier or, or, or a rapid city, for that matter. Mm -hmm. And I, I like the idea that your best decisions are made at the local level. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think people have confidence when their local officials are talking to them and visiting with them and explaining it out. And then I think you get that cooperative effort. And, and that's what we need. And that, that common sense is something that maybe doesn't go a long ways in some other parts of the country. Um, is it disconcerting at all that the, the data is changing so drastically over the course of this? You know, initially the projections were astronomical. I mean, we're all going to die. And then a as we've gone through this and seen real life, real data on the ground, uh, it, it's kind of leveled out. Some places are still hotbeds. That, that's going to happen. But across the board, it's kind of leveled out. Um, it, is it, why is it so hard, I guess, is the question, for the governing bodies, and you kind of touched on it, to to pull back and say, okay, the data was was scary first and it's pulled back. So we're going to now let up. What, what is it that doesn't allow them to do that? You know, I, I, I think, let me just go back a little bit. Um, we started receiving class, not classified, but private briefings on what was going on mm -hmm. really in January. Yeah. And I think really before we started shutting things down totally, we had like seven of those briefings. But even at about the second or third briefing that we had back in January and, and early February, it was pretty clear what the outcome would be if if we were able to slow down the spread and bend that curve. It was still going to be that the mortality rate would be closer to about five times what the rate was with influenza. Mm -hmm. And that's really holding pretty true. But when you ask people to cooperate and you ask them to slow down those interactions um, you're able to actually treat the individuals with the appropriate medical care that's available. I think that has a lot to do with achieving that lower mortality rate of about one half of 1%. And remember, that's, you know, with, with influenza, it's one-tenth of 1%. So you're still in that neighborhood. So over the last three months, the actual end result is pretty close to what a lot of us thought it was going to be the first week in February. But it could be a whole lot worse for people that are over the age of 65 and have other health conditions. And if you're over the age of 85 and you catch it, uh, your life is in peril. There's no question on that. And so for me, part of it is, is um, what's the value of trying our best to protect those individuals that, you know, those grandmas and grandpas and great grandmas and great grandpas that are out there. And, um, you know, how much do we know about how we spread it? Yeah. The fear that we had way back in January was that we might have people that were atypical, that, 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 didn't, that didn't show the disease, but might be carriers of it. Mm -hmm. And we found that to be true. And, and that's still the biggest fear we've got is that you could have carriers that don't show any symptoms 
that could spread it to people who are truly at risk. So, um, do, 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 you know, if you ask me, um, okay, so did we overblow this? My answer would be no, we did not. What we were able to do is to bend this curve a whole lot more than some of the experts thought we had or had the capability of doing. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna give credit not to government officials, but to the American public who use their own common sense, their mm-hmm. own sense that, you know, we know this is serious and we've got loved ones who are at risk and we're not gonna take that chance. So uh, let's give the American public some credit for this. They really did go out of their way to, to try to slow down uh, the spread of this virus. And I think that had a huge impact. Uh, is it appropriate for uh, local governments to, um, <laughs> to fine and imprison? Uh, businesses that feel that they need to work so they can provide? You know, I, I, I had a real problem with what I've seen on the news. I mm-hmm. mean, there's a couple of examples out there where clearly you had some judges that I think overstepped <laughs> right. their bounds. I mean, there's a, like, I'm going to say this again. In South Dakota, we've been using common sense. There's, there's a lack. It, it's not common across the rest of the country necessarily. And you've always got an isolated incident here and there that, that can push the issue. Um, th- when we talk about directives, emergency directives for health reasons, for for emergency reasons and health reasons, the courts have always said that they're going to give the benefit of the doubt to the the executive, to the governor or to the mayor or to the president, but on an emergency basis. And that's the difference in some some of these cases is, is if you're not talking about an emergency basis, the courts don't look very nicely at an executive who oversteps that bound. And neither does the voting public. <laughs> and so th- those are the re- and those are the things that I think you've got to be aware of. Here in America, we understand that if you've got an emergency, somebody needs to take charge. Uh, and, and, and in South Dakota, we've done that when I was governor. There were times in which you simply have to say, look, somebody has to make a decision now. And, and you do that. And you have to coordinate it. But then as you move out of the immediate emergency, you work to build consensus, to move forward with your, your other elected officials, on a coordinated basis. In South Dakota, we've always done this not by creating controversy, but by creating that cooperative effort that says, this is what we want our elected officials to do. Work together to get something done to address what could be a real emergency. Mm -hmm. Um, are, Are you confident in the data going forward and the people that are crafting the data that, that it's accurate and it's actually actionable at this point? I think sometimes they they miss or they are either misrepresented or in some cases they don't do a good job of sharing mm-hmm. the information appropriately so that it's understandable. Just as an example, uh, in some parts of the country right now they're saying, "Oh, they opened up the they opened up uh, to, to let people go to to uh, places other than to get essential services," and they say, "And look, there's already a spike going on." And the reality is, is you got to wait 14 days between the two. And anybody that makes the inference because there's an order saying, uh, you know, you're 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 going to be allowed to go back out and and, and have your hair cut, that you're immediately going to see an uptick in 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 cases is just wrong. And so that misinformation that gets out there is sometimes played the wrong direction. And leaders have got to be able to say, look, we're going to make a change. And if over a period of several weeks we see an increase. Let's go back in and find out whether it's isolated. There's a particular location where it's coming from. 
But rather than totally shutting down the economy again, we're going to try to figure out where this is coming from and go in and take specific action in those cases. Yet we have to be able to do both in this country. We have to have our economy operating again, and we have to keep our workers safe. And we've got to have safe workplaces where people can come and get their services taken care of. We can do both. Mm -hmm. And the more we learn about this disease, the easier it's going to be to put those processes in place. Do you think that this has been or will be co-opted by um, the the never let a good crisis go to waste crowd? Um, oh, uh, the, to, to, they, they, to, to set an example, like this is actually how we should sit, craft our society? <laughs> oh, yes. No question about it. Um, you know, we, we've heard it a lot later, a lot lately that says that certain people that maybe have never even been elected themselves believe that they do really good jobs of giving advice to other people. They'll say, well, you need you need to take this crisis and use it for another purpose. Mm -hmm. And, and I think that is a travesty, uh, and it is something that the American people should never trust. If you have a pandemic, if you have an emergency, then um, the American people expect their leaders to address the emergency, and they absolutely should not use it to accomplish other issues that they couldn't get done in the normal course of the legislative process. But that is a risk that is huge right now. And, I, you know, normally on these kind of deals, I, I don't get real partisan on stuff, but I'll just tell you, this Green New Deal that's out there and this idea that they want to take over the federal vo or the, the voting system across this country, this is stuff that's got to be stopped in its tracks. Uh, this cannot happen. There, there's folks out there right now that want the feds to run the voting systems in this country. <laughs> Man, you would have such a cluster on your hands if you allowed that to happen. So... And they'd love to take that away from your local elected officials. Believe me, they would love to be able to dictate who votes, when you vote, and how. who's allowed to vote. You'd have felons voting. You'd have yeah. folks that are 16 years of age voting. Um, and, and you would have people that probably aren't even citizens voting. And this is the kind of stuff that at the state level and at the local level, common sense comes in, prevails, and you don't have that stuff happening. Yeah. And in South Dakota, just as an example... Okay, we, we got a COVID-19 crisis. We've got a thing where we're separating people out. We've still got to have our elections. So what does our Secretary of State do? Hey, goes to the legislature, and the legislature says, guess what we're going to do? We're going to make it easier for people to get their ballots. Now, you don't have to have a notary public sign it. You can take a copy of your driver's license and attach it to your request for a ballot, and it works. That's that's coming a long way in this process. Or if you don't have access to a copy machine, you can email it to your local auditor and they'll use your emailed copy of that of that, that driver's license. That's a good thing because it makes it easier for a legitimate voter to be able to cast their ballot. That's a good thing. Um, what are your thoughts on, uh, and we'll get to the, the more local stuff here in a minute and your, and your election again. Um, what are your thoughts with uh, companies like YouTube and Facebook um, setting new standards that if if content doesn't adhere to the World Health Organization's narrative about COVID-19, it is against community guidelines and is removed um, across the board. Should a company be allowed, a company that is that big and some would argue is just a platform for opinions and voices, um, to really begin to sh to shut down anyone that might say something to
to the contrary of the global narrative? We really do value the First Amendment. And when you start talking about restricting uh, the ability of people to express their opinions, uh, it's one thing to say the opinion expressed by this person is not the opinion of this organization. I have no problem with that at all. But you still need to be able to express the opinion as wild and crazy as it might be. American public are pretty pretty good about being able to pick out the bizarre or weird or, or um, you know, the, 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 the weird stuff out there. We don't give the, the voting public uh, enough credit in a lot of cases. They get it. You know, at one time we had basically three networks in the United States. The three networks controlled everything. And if it wasn't according to their opinion, you didn't see it. What happened? Well, Ted Turner started CNN. Fox News with Mr. Murdoch comes in and starts that. And suddenly the three networks are realizing that people are questioning whether their point of view and their opinion about what is news maybe isn't everything it's cracked up to be. And now I, I don't think people would ever go back to having just three opinions about what it is. I think you get people that look at, at Bloomberg, they look at Fox, they look at Fox Business, um, they look at writers or Reuters. Mm-hmm. Uh, then they look at the at the three majors, the traditional three, and a lot of people still look at CNN as well. So you've got those all out there, and people are now picking and choosing a little bit, saying, "I guess I have to discern for myself fact versus fiction or opinion versus fact." Coming back to South Dakota, um, there is well, you are um, in the middle of a primary challenge. Um, primary is June 2nd, correct? Yes. In South Dakota. Um, the, uh, would you, I, I've, I've been asked before, um, would you be up for a primary debate? Is that something that's on the table? We consider it, Yeah. but we, you know, nobody's really walked up and and, you know, and none of the news organizations have really come in and said, we're going to do yeah. debates. Or but I've just said, look, when I talk to my campaign people, I said, look, if if there's two different parts on this, if somebody asks me in my official role, mm-hmm. I'll refer it right back to the to the campaign. And I think that's a pretty good way to do it. And just I'll have my, you know, Rob Schonsberg is my campaign man, my campaign manager. Uh, folks across the area know him. He's from Sisseton originally. And uh, I just said, you know, Rob, you handle that end of it, and we'll go from there. But we'll consider them. So, so your people will talk to other people's people. <laughs> That's it. Yeah, nice. we learned something from Washington on it. <laughs> Excellent. Um, all right, l- let's dig a I little like bit. I like the way you put that. <laughs> <laughs> um, there has been some, and I, I grew up in Oregon, so I'm a, I'm a transplant to the Midwest about 12 years ago. Um, and so I honestly really had no um, knowledge of South Dakota politics for, well, up honestly until recently. Um, I focused on national and back on the West Coast and uh, the crazy that's out in Oregon. Um, the EB-5 program in South Dakota has been a source of uh, dissension, perhaps, from what I've been reading. Can you briefly talk about what that is and what the real value of it is to South Dakota? Sure. It, it, EB-5 is a visa program that was established by the federal government back in the 1990s. I didn't have anything to do with establishing it, but when I became governor, it was brought to my attention that this allowed individuals who were from outside of the United States 
to be able to get a green card, not citizenship, but a green card, which is the ability to come to the United States uh, if they invest in economic development projects in certain areas. Does that t- kind of put a price tag on that green card? Like, does it, it make does. it a, a, a buy a, a commodity? Yeah, it 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 allows not it doesn't increase the number of visas available, but we have visas that allow for ag workers to mm-hmm. come in. They agree to come in and work in an ag area. We have visas that come in that work in the tourism area on on that we use in South Dakota, and then you have this particular visa which says if you invest, like in this case, it was a half a million dollars. In a project, you can get a green card to come into the United States. That has since been yeah, raised you, to nine hundred thousand, hasn't it? Uh, I think it's closer. I think it's. I don't know if it's nine hundred thousand or a million. Okay. Um, we've actually got reform legislation that, like way back in twenty thirteen, when it was an issue in the previous campaign, mm-hmm. I said, "Look, if I get an opportunity, I'm going to reform this thing." Because in looking at it in South Dakota. There's a better way to do it. And we didn't find that there was anybody in D.C. that had ever made any reform efforts on it. So I think you're probably pretty close on that in terms of what it is today. Uh, Our legislation would actually make it about a a $1.1 million deal to get a green card for most places or a million dollars in a rural area. But then you could when the money comes back in, it goes into areas, into economic development projects in selected areas. In South Dakota, in the middle of the last recession we had, when banks weren't lending money, uh, when economic development dollars simply weren't available, was one way in which to bring investment dollars into the state for infrastructure that would stay here and build jobs and help us rebuild the economy. Does that? Sorry, does that? The pushback that I've heard from talking to people over the last year about it um, was that it. It allows for out for foreign ownership in rural and, and in America, but in a lot of it in rural America. Um, talk, speak to that. I mean, what, what yeah. does it actually allow the Chinese or the South Koreans or the you know the, the Indians to come in and own parts of America? They could have equity in a project, and so what you have is is somebody with a project in a location that owned it. But if they were looking for outside investors to also participate with them, this was a way to be able to increase the amount of equity Mm -hmm. in a project. And the reason that these folks wanted it is, is in many cases, they were saying, I might want to live in the United States at some point in the future. This is a way for me to be able to have an access to be able to live in the United States if I pass security clearances. Didn't take away any of the security clearances, but it did allow for a lot of those places to actually reinvest which brought cash back into the United States from overseas. But for us, it meant a chance to build jobs, which was one of the requirements in the EB-5 program. What we were surprised to find out was that there wasn't any oversight of the (laughs) EB-5 program with regards to how they competed with one another across the country for these dollars. And so when I got in, I said one way or another, and I know there's people out there that say, oh, we used it when I was governor. And the answer is, is yes, we did. And because of that, we have operating infrastructure in here that we never would have had if we didn't do it, which means we've got jobs here that we never would have had beforehand. But it also doesn't mean that you can't take a federal program and actually fix it. And so I've been working with folks on either side of the aisle for several years now 
to put together reform legislation that would actually bring accountability and people responsible for actually overseeing the system itself. Because if you're going to have it, and if you're going to compete with other places that also have it, Canada's had it for years as well, then you want to make sure that somebody is held accountable to make sure that the only the right people are allowed to invest in it mm-hmm. and that there is credibility and accountability for the project in the future. So what happens uh, if it just goes away? It's gone, repealed, there's no more EB-5 in the country. What is the impact of that? Well, you have the same number of people that are still coming into the country because it it simply says right now that about 7% of what is allowed in is eligible to look at EB-5. So if you take away that, it just means they go into the regular green card programs that are there. So it doesn't have any impact on the number of individuals who would come to the country. But what it does say is, is that the people that have actually made money outside of the United States would be restricted in terms of being able to invest in rural areas of the country with the money as an incentive to put their money back into these locations. So they could still come to the United States, but there wouldn't be a prospect saying uh, there's a limit um, uh, that says you can't come unless you put your money into a project in the United States. They can still come, but it would have to be through a different Mm -hmm. visa program. So is it fair to say that it's kind of about the money? Like like the value well, the value of it is the investment and, the, and that that's what makes it worth it. Precisely. Okay. And and just to give you an example, uh, we have meat processing plants here in South Dakota mm-hmm. that are operating today, and we need those uh, that n- that never would have been established if we wouldn't have had access to that equity during that recession uh, in in the years from two thousand and six to two thousand and nine. Uh, what? that's another piece that's kind of in the news lately is the the centralization of meatpacking in in the entire country how hard would it be to um you know the the big guys can still roll but to open up small producers to actually have direct to consumer contact is that possible we've been trying for a couple of years and in fact uh, already we've already established over a year ago and proposed language that would have allowed our state beef proce- our state licensed processing plants to sell from state to state mm. in interstate commerce. We didn't get it through last year. Packers don't like this idea, by the way. They don't like the addition of competition. Well, but so we've got it again. <laughs> Does know, that matter? That. Yeah. Look, well, it, it, it did because they killed our bill last year. But mm. uh, we're back. We're back again. We're putting it in again. Uh, and this time, I got a lot more support than what I had last time around. Remember. The state of South Dakota has processes, processing plants that have to be equal to or better than the health standards is set up for your interstate processing plants, the big packers healthcare guidelines. Yeah. The, and, and and right now, those states though, it's okay for them to like to be in like a T. They can sell to Sioux Falls, but they can't sell to Omaha. Are you Why is that? <laughs> yeah. And so what we said was is more than a year ago. Let's open that up so that if you have a state licensed processing plant and if they're following the same guidelines that are equal to or better than what the federal guidelines are, then why can't we sell across the borders? Mm. Well, they don't have a good answer for it, except that they don't like the competition. And by the way, 80 percent of all of our processing in the United States is done by four packers. And that has caused that's a problem, isn't it? It's a real problem. It's a big problem. Now, we, we've got antitrust laws in the United States, 
But the question is, is whether or not they have been enforced or whether or not those laws are adequate. So back in March, March 19th, I actually requested from the, the Department of Justice that they begin an investigation into this Packer oligopoly and whether or not our laws that are on the books right now are adequate and whether or not they're in violation of those laws right now. So rather than simply going in and saying, we know they're in violation, I said, you do the investigation, find out. And if you come back and you tell us that no, our current laws that are on the books and have been there for decades aren't adequate, now I've got ammo to go back in and make changes to get it fixed. Did that happen? Well, or is it happening? The the Department of Justice uh, does not tell you if they're doing an open investigation. But, you know, in in South Dakota and in the upper Midwest, a secret is something you tell other people one person at a time. (laughs) And so there's folks out there right now that have told us that or have told some of my colleagues in other states that they've been contacted Mm. and that there is an investigation going on. I can't I can't tell you what it is. I can just tell you that that's the information I got from some of my colleagues. I'm hopeful that it's going on right now. And by the way, my understanding is the president's on board right now and has also suggested it's a good idea to have that investigation. Because I did send him a letter on it, too. (laughs) Excellent. Because of the scale of the the big the big four, the big boys, um, is it very possible that they will buy off? The investigation, I mean, it, it's it, lobbyist-wise. I mean, are they going to be able to to effectively keep out competition? I I don't think so. Um, I I I think they would like to, but look, the, these are here in the United States. They're legitimate businesses. Uh, they're in competition. They see their competition as each, each other. other. Mm-hmm. Um, but they also understand that uh, you know they're like any business. They don't really want more competition. But the reality is, is if our if our uh, laws that are on the books right now, if they're if they're not working for our market today, then we got to fix the laws. Yeah. Because yeah. I can just tell you, we got beef beef producers out here, guys, farmers, feeders, and so forth. They're going broke. Yeah. They're losing three to four hundred dollars a head right now. These packers, in some cases, are making sixteen hundred dollars gross profit a head. Are you kidding? On on livestock today. Oh, wow. And so and so the system is broken mm-hmm. and it's also a bottleneck. It's a bottleneck in that once you see uh, the the larger processing plants get shut down because of health concerns, then then our producers don't have any market for the beef that, that's ready to go. And when that happens, they don't get paid. And that also, by the way, when you have that when you have that bottleneck, mm-hmm. it just magnifies the losses that our farmers and ranchers are taking because if you got fewer markets that are buying because they can't process them, less demand uh, at that point, at that choke point, means the prices go down even worse. And that's what's going on right now. Yeah. All right. So it's a double whammy for our farmers and ranchers. And and and, and let, me, let me give you one more thing here. And I know I'm probably going on more than what, what we talked about, but there's a, there's a, a voluntary program called Product of the USA. And the Department of Ag, for a long time, has let uh, these processors uh, be able to take beef from other countries, bring it in, uh, basically boxed or frozen, all cut up, and then repackage it and get to sell it as product of the USA. How? Now, 
because that's what the rule says. And that's absurd. So I've got legislation in to change that as well. And I mean, I mean, can you imagine as a consumer going in and you see a nice big label on your meat shelf and it says product of the USA and you say, I'm supporting my local farmers. It's good, high quality U.S. beef. <laughs> right. And then you realize that it's boxed beef that's been brought in from overseas by one of our packers, repackaged and sold as product of the USA because it's been reprocessed in the U.S. That is absolutely false advertising and it's got to be stopped as soon as possible. And this is two years now that we've been working on that process as well. Packers don't like the idea. And in fact, the Department of Ag has now suggested through one of their agencies that, well, we won't go so far as to say that it's got to be born, uh, raised, fed, and processed. It's okay if it's just, uh, if, if, it's, if, if, if only part of it's done. If you bring it in, you've got to basically cut it up here in the United States. And I just think that's wrong. And How I is think that? It's, how is that not corruption? Well, I don't know if it's not corruption. Uh, I just think okay, it's, it's wrong. a straight up lie I, then. <laughs> yeah, I, well, I mean, it's it's look if they Dishonest. can get away with changing the rules and if they're following the rules, yeah. you know. But here's what I call it: there's a difference between a criminal corruption and what I call basically corrosion. Hmm. Corrosion, which occurs that you just got to fix it, it. It's doing your due diligence every single day to follow these things through. And to make sure that things work the way they're supposed to. And in this particular case, I don't think there's somebody in the Department of Ag which is doing something criminally negligent. Mm -hmm. It's just the good old boy system that's got to be fixed when it comes to telling the American public whether or not the beef and the pork they've got really is coming from a U.S. producer where they know it is high quality. So should there be some sort of rule that requires um, labeling that says where it came from? Well, we've got a program in right now that basically says mandatory country of origin labeling mm -hmm. should go back into effect. But here's the deal. Under World Trade Organization guidelines, and we're a member of the World Trade Organization, they've told us that when we did mandatory country of origin labeling before, that it was in violation of our rules because we didn't have an agreement with Canada or Mexico on it. And since we didn't have an agreement with them and we imposed it on them, that they could put tariffs back on other products that are being sent to their country, which meant the other people that have those other commodities mm -hmm. like cotton um, or uh, metals, they get to decide what other commodities they could impose tariffs on in order to punish the United States. Well, if you're a producer of cotton and you find out that they're going to put a tariff on your <laughs> cotton because right. of, uh, of a beef thing, you're not very happy, which means the Congress what came back in and said, oh, I guess we can't have mandatory country of origin labeling. I sent a letter to the president and I've asked him as part of a three-part deal that he should go back since he's just negotiated with Canada and Mexico. He should go back in, have our trade reps say, look, it is time that we allow for mandatory country of origin labeling on beef. Mm. We need to do this. And the president has the ability to demand that from Mexico and Canada as part of ongoing negotiations. So that's not going to get changed. Right that's not going to get changed by a law then necessarily. No, that that could be changed by by uh, well, actually a couple of us we are putting in uh, right now. We've got legislation right now that we're putting in uh, on a bipartisan basis, mm -hmm. doing exactly the same thing, saying let's go back in and let's get a country of origin labeling resolution put together, directing the president legislatively to go back in and renegotiate. Yeah.
All right, two more questions about politics, and then I have one question about you, and then I'll let you go. Um, is the federal government too big? Yeah, no question about it. I, I think their influence is too big. Um, right now, just as an example, um, if, if, if you look at, at, the, at the Department of Veterans Affairs, which is designed to take care of our veterans, uh, they're adding thousands of people on uh, every single year, supposedly to take care of our veterans. And yet a lot of our veterans in rural areas don't have access to a VA facility. And yet the size of the Veterans Affairs continues to go up. And if you take a look, there's always somebody that says there ought to be a law. The nice thing right now is that in D.C. with, with President Trump, his idea is, is there's too many regulations and too many federal laws. And since the president came in, we've been able to eliminate over eight rules for every new rule that's been developed. Wow. So I, 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 think there's a, I think there's a movement in the right direction right now mm -hmm. to get the federal government out of our lives to a certain extent. But there's a lot more work to do. One area where the federal government probably needs to invest more rather than less is in our military defense. Because, quite frankly, for the last three years, the committee that I'm on, the Armed Services Committee, we've identified uh, uh, through our, our, our national security guidelines, great power competition is clearly back. We are not recognizing how serious the threat of Russia and China is. And I'll just tell you, for the next for the next 10 to 30 years, the greatest threat that we have to our freedom in the United States today is red China. Mm. And, and, and we can't say that enough. China is a real threat. Uh, we thought for a long time, I think, in this country that we could work with them. But during this entire time that they have been supposedly trading partners with us, they have been stealing our intellectual property. They've been great at their espionage. They have stolen a huge amount, but they're, they've been stealing stuff from us. And at the same time, using unfair marketing techniques, they have taken and basically run out a lot of our really super critical manufacturing processes in the United States, including pharmaceuticals. Uh, and yeah, most of them are made there. Yeah. And, and I mean, and, and, and these are issues that if there is one thing to come out of this pandemic, it is the clear need to reestablish within the United States mm -hmm. critical industries and processes that have to be here, even if it's yeah. less expensive to do it someplace else. Would the the fact that China is a, a very real threat <clears throat> to the U.S., would that um, be a, a reason to reconsider the thinking back to the EB-5 and China is one of those companies or one of those countries that I think the, the Wikipedia, which is truth, clearly, um, <laughs> oh, about eight. It says about eighty percent comes from four countries: China, South Korea, Taiwan, and the UK. Um, should China be banned from that because of the potential threat? You're actually thinking like we're thinking. In <laughs> fact, I have an I have an amendment uh, that we're going to propose based upon what we've seen because of legislation that was, or, or because of rules that have been put in bed by Red China. Mm. They actually require now that anybody who invests in another country who owns ownership in another country, they also have to be able to cooperate with their intelligence agency. Ooh. That's a new statute that they put in over there, I think prohibits Chinese investment in the United States in the future. What does that I do think with, we have to do that. What, what does that do with, you know, Smithfield and Sioux Falls? They are, uh, their parent company is a Chinese company. 
Um, what does that do? To, I, I, what does that do to that? Well, in this particular case, the language that I've got is regard to EB five. Mm, That's okay. one of the okay. reforms that we intend gotcha. to make. Okay. So it wouldn't affect that. But by the way, uh, back in 2013, they actually did investigations as to whether or not they would allow them in. I think if those same investigations were going on today, <laughs> it would it'd be different. <laughs> might might have an entirely different outcome. Gotcha. Yeah. All right. I, uh, one more. I have. Uh, I've heard. I've talked to people on both sides of this that have different thoughts. I want yours. Um, give me your thought and uh, opinion on term limits in Congress, House or Senate at the federal level. Yeah. Look, it. it I, I I've been a believer in term limits in the executive branch. Mm -hmm. uh, but until such time as we have term limits in bureaucracy, you don't want to have just amateurs coming in uh, to your legislature uh, or into your senator, your house in, in Congress and having to relearn uh, every couple of years to deal with a bureaucracy, which is there for 30 and 35 years. So until such time as we have term limits in the executive branch requiring those bureaucrats to leave, mm. You don't want to put the American public who actually elect individuals mm -hmm. at a disadvantage of saying, gee, I've had somebody there for eight years or 10 years. They have to leave because we want an amateur to come in and start over again. And we're going to let that bureaucrat stay there. If there was a way to get the bureaucrats out at the same rate, now I think you can start talking about it. But even in peer today, and I, I shared this, um, some of the, the brightest minds that ever went to to, to appear to work in the legislature. I think of a Harold Halverson as an example, was there for over 28 years. He got elected because he was really good at what he did. And, and to suggest that, well, yeah, he was really good at it and the people really liked him, so they're gonna take him out from being there. Harold Halverson knew the Commerce Committee. Harold Halverson knew the labor laws in South Dakota. Uh, and, and he knew it as good as, if not better, than the bureaucrats who would come in front of his committee. And when they tried to blow smoke past Harold Halverson, it didn't work. And in fact, I was there when Harold told people, if you're going to come in here in the future and tell this committee that type of misinformation, you're going to get thrown out of here. <laughs> and you want that type of experience in your legislative body because that's the best oversight of, a, of an executive branch gone awry that you're ever going to get. So executive branch uh, term limits, absolutely. Legislative branch, term limits, I really disagree. What about a, an age limit for um, a congressperson? Um, I mean, a, a lot of corporations do it. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I I, I got to tell you, um, one of my good friends in the United States Senate is a guy by the name of, uh, of Jim Inhofe. Mm -hmm. uh, Jim Inhofe is 85 years old, going to be 86 in the next six months. Uh, I'll stack Jim Inhofe and his <laughs> mental capacities up against anybody in the United States Senate. Yeah. He's just, and he's got all the experience in the world. He's, he's chairman of the Armed Services Committee, and he travels every single year. He travels extensively to get more information. People think, think he, he goes on trips just to go overseas. He goes to the war zones. I've been with him year after year here. We travel into the war zones. We travel into Africa, into places where you got to get malaria shots because he wants to know what's going on. We go into Western Sahara because other people don't go there to find out what the problems are and where the next terrorist threat is at. Mm. Uh, you know, and, and so here's a guy that doesn't get into your cocktail parties. 
he gets into going in and finding the places where the real problems are at. And so, you know, I, I, I honestly, I know there's examples of folks that have overdone their, their time period. Yeah. Th- that happens. But you got to trust the American voter to figure a lot of that out and to decide when that term limit is. Uh, one more thought on this. I, I heard Nancy Pelosi last year, I think it was early in the summer last year. Um, she made someone asked her if it was time to maybe step out. Um, and she made the claim that our system is based on seniority. And when you have seniority, you have more of a voice. Is that an appropriate position to hold for elective government? You know, it, it, unfortunately she is, she's telling the truth. Really? Uh, it, it, it is there. I mean, it's, You've got folks that have got a huge amount of seniority that work their way through, but there's ways to reform that. And we've actually done some reforms in the Senate already. Um, You don't get to have your seniority and keep your position as chairman of a committee Mm -hmm. for an extended period of time. We don't allow that. Uh, You can go for six years and then basically you get to get off. Those are the types of reforms that you can do. Uh, and, and, And so there's ways to work your way through it, but um, you're, she's right. In the Senate, seniority is is huge, and when you come in as a freshman, uh, you can make an impact, <laughs> but you do it by getting other people with seniority to work with you okay. and, uh, and 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 to do it. But uh, yeah, there, there's reforms that could be made with regard to how those guidelines are laid out. All right. So I've heard tell that uh, that you don't typically stay over the weekend in D.C. That you like to be I, back in South Dakota? Absolutely. Uh, this is home. Uh, look, I, I, I'm not a D.C. resident. I live in Fort Pierre. But what I try to do is to get back in so that on Fridays I get someplace in the state, see what's going on, mm-hmm. get to a restaurant. And I and I try to do it unannounced so I don't have it set up. I'll, I'll, and then try to get in someplace and just talk to folks and see what's going on and then move on to another spot. But this is this is where sanity is. This is where normalcy is. Uh, still like to, I mean, I, I still do the, do the shopping. <laughs> so uh, you'll see me at, you'll see me at Walmart. You'll see me at Dakota Martin Pier. You'll see me at Shields. Um, uh, or, you know, uh, 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 you know, I mean, I, I just, this is, you know, get out and visit. My wife says it's kind of tough to go shopping with me because it might take me two hours to go down and, and, and get it. But that's where you really get a feel for yeah. what's popping and, 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 and what focus. And, you know, it, and, and I say, yeah, but you know what? The nice thing is, is folks are still ready to sit down and visit and they still want to ask questions and they still want to give you their thoughts. And if that ever happened where they didn't feel comfortable doing that, then I'd be in trouble. Yeah. And um, you know, that I, I like what I'm doing. Uh, I, I like to be able to do that. And it's fun to get that that feedback from folks. Well, when you're ever out and about in Millbank, please come in. We'd love to have you in studio. It'd be so fun. Um, hey, I, I will take <laughs> you up on that. Excellent. Wonderful. Um what what's your uh, what's your favorite animal to hunt? Pheasants, no question. Excellent. Roosters, <laughs> those are the pretty ones, you know. That's right. They taste good too. <laughs> oh, look! I I was born on the opening weekend of pheasant season. Oh, how and convenient! My dad, my dad always said that uh, I owed him a hunt because of that, <laughs> and I reminded him that it wasn't my fault in the timing <laughs> <Right>. there. Uh, <laughs> but 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 I can also tell you that that. Uh, uh, to this day, uh, pheasant hunting is a huge part of our life. Uh, my kids all hunt. Uh, my family loves to hunt. Uh, it brings people into South Dakota, and, and and it shares that camaraderie. You get together, and, and it's one thing to go out and shoot roosters and 
find different ways of 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 uh, of cooking it up and stuff, which is always part of our culture. But just that camaraderie of getting together and doing it as a group. You know, you know, deer hunting. You know, yeah, you get a small group together, and you can have fun as a family or whatever. But when you pheasant hunt, you get big groups together, and you rekindle those relationships again, those friendships, and you bring people in from out of state. And so for me, uh, I love that aspect of it. And I. I get asked by folks, you know, we, we talk about Mount Rushmore and everything and how big that is. But people that love to come to South Dakota and pheasant hunt, mm-hmm. and they remember the traditions of their, their dads and their moms and their grandmas and grandpas and what that meant. That's something which I think sometimes we underestimate what a value that is yeah. in terms of, you know, what it does for us. Yeah. Give us one thing that people don't know about you. Oh boy! Look, I've been around the been around this thing since 1991. Um, there isn't a whole lot that they don't know about me. Awesome! All right, where can they find information about you, your campaign, and where you're going to be? Uh, roundsforsenate.com is the is the is the website on it. Um, easiest way to do it. Uh, we we do try to keep separation between everything we do on a formal basis mm-hmm. in our full time job. And the campaign itself, which sometimes folks will come in and they'll want to talk politics. I just tell them, I, I can't do that. That's not the way it's set up. And it would give the sitting senator an unfair advantage over anybody else. Yeah. So we always try to separate those. But for anything political, uh, roundsforsenate.com will get you into it is the easiest way to do it. Awesome. Well, Senator Mike Rounds, I really appreciate you uh, taking the time. We went over our time, but thank you so much. And do come in if you're ever in the Millbank area uh, and give our best appreciate to uh, give our best to Desmond. He's He's one of our favorite people. So, hey, will will do. We're gonna keep we're gonna keep an eye on him here. Excellent, good. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful right. day. Stay healthy and uh, continue to make some change. Good work. Appreciate. It. Thanks. Thank Bye-bye. you. Have a good one. This is the interview podcast on the Y Milbank Podcast Network. That was Senator Mike Rounds. Thanks so much, Senator, for coming uh, on the show. Uh, thank you, Desmond, for coordinating and lining that up. Um, it's always good to take a little bit of time and we got more than I thought we would have. So that's wonderful to get to know people and figure out who they are and how they think about, uh, situations. So, uh, as we always say here on the interview, uh, especially in the political world, do all of your own research and then go vote because it does matter. Thanks a lot. I'm Craig Weinberg. Whymailbank.com is the website for everything we do with that project. Have a wonderful day. Stay healthy. Enjoy the sun. See you later.